Well, I think it's safe to assume that most of us in here struggle with worry at one point or another. Uh, There's an expression one author used that uh, those few moments without worry are simply called panic. Uh, We're always struggling with concern, anxiety, and um, in fact, I think it's so pervasive in our culture here that we often wonder, is it something we can overcome? Is it something we should just adapt to? Is it something we should just get used to because it's such part and parcel of our lives. Well, interestingly, Jesus doesn't, doesn't seem to even incline us towards that. In fact, he says that we're not to be anxious about our lives. And just to make sure we get the point, he says it three times in this one section of Scripture. Do not be anxious about your lives. Now, remember the context. In 19 to 34, just a couple weeks back, uh, we talked about this idea of don't store for yourselves treasures on earth, and, and don't keep it all. Be generous to give it away. And, and don't serve money, but, but serve God. And so I'm sure implicit in the minds of the disciples, they're thinking, well, who's going to take care of us? I mean, if we're that generous and we're not storing up anything for ourselves, how are we going to survive? Well, Jesus knows full well that this is the issue in their minds. And yet he still says, don't be anxious about your lives. And, and graciously, the Lord Christ is going to give us reasons for why we can banish and put anger to the side. Remember, this chapter 6 in Matthew is really helping us deal, particularly the second half, is helping us to deal with the things of the world. So in 19 to 24, here's how you deal with the things of the world, that you don't succumb to materialism and making much out of them. At the same time, here's how you now deal with the things of the world. Don't worry about them. Don't be anxious about them. Uh, But before I read the passage... I was struck by this comment made by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher, London preacher, back in the mid-20th century. He said this, and he was quoting another pastor he had heard. And it really changed, really affected the way I listened to Scripture. He said, many of us believe on the Lord Jesus, but we don't believe Jesus. In other words, he says, many of us believe on him for his work, of salvation on the cross. We believe the cross and what he's done, but we don't believe in his words. We don't actually believe what he says is true. Now, I want you to think about that as I go through this text, because there's some startling, I think, guilt-removing, great encouragement in this text, all in the context of not being anxious. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 6.25, and I'll read all the way through 34. And, and, and note in your mind the distinction when I'm reading. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus? And do you believe Jesus, that he speaks the truth to us here? So in Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? I mean, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, 
saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, so Jesus here, there's just two things I want to kind of bring to your mind. I think he lays down a principle for us. This call to not be anxious. But I want to clarify that because uh, there is some legitimate concern. There's some illegitimate concern. So I, I want to define what it means to not be anxious. And then I want to give you reasons that Jesus gives. We're just going to move through the scriptures, reason argument by argument as to why we don't have to be anxious. Living in anxiety. And then I'm going to leave it up to you to consider, do you believe Jesus? I mean, you believe on him, but do you believe him? Do you believe the words that he gives? So look at the principle with me back in 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Now, this is meant to bring comfort and peace to his disciples. I think it causes a lot of confusion for us. I think a lot of times we get confused over what is he really saying here? Uh, You have all of a sudden a very, very sick child. Should we not be concerned about that? You have a prognosis of cancer. Do you not? Do you get concerned about that? Perhaps a job loss, layoffs are coming. I I mean, there are these seemingly legitimate concerns. And how do we differentiate between legitimate and illegitimate? I'd like to start by saying what I think he's not condemning here. I'm going to speak with what he's not condemning, and then I'm going to speak to what I think he is condemning. He's not telling us here, uh, don't think about life. Don't give thought to life. I mean, in in the passage, he speaks about studying the birds and studying the flowers of the field. I mean, he wants us to think about life, particularly with him in the center of it. I don't think he is saying that you shouldn't exercise foresight. You know, when he says don't be anxious for tomorrow, he's not saying don't plan for tomorrow. I mean, the ant is honored in Scripture for planning for future difficulty. I I don't think he's saying, hey, just have a happy-go-lucky attitude. Don't worry about anything, kind of a calypso attitude. I, I mean, you know in the examples that he gives here, uh, he says at the end, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has, uh, will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, Jesus uh, in John 16 says, in this world you'll have trouble. I mean, he promises us that. So I don't want to minimize the grief and the sorrow and the struggle that we face in this life by saying, hey, you can't be, you can't be concerned about the difficulties of life. And, and last, I, think he's, I definitely think he's not saying that you shouldn't work. Hey, you know what? He feeds the birds. He feeds... He takes care of the flowers. We can just let go and let God. I don't think that's a biblical expression at all. I mean, look at his examples. The birds are always working. I mean, who works harder than a sparrow? Constantly gathering up worms, building nests. How about the the flowers? I mean, that elaborate process of photosynthesis, you know, of converting all that energy to beauty. So they're working. So I don't think he's saying there isn't a legitimate place for future planning and provision. Don't think he's saying that there's a legitimate place for an appropriate concern over the present. I mean, think about it for a minute. So the architect has just designed a building and done all the specs, and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he thinks, hmm, I've got to go back and check the numbers on that thing. I I mean, that's a legitimate concern. He he wakes up, he's human, he might have made a mistake, and and, and the the safety of the people in the building are going to rest upon that. So that's probably a good concern. Or the preacher, like me, wakes up at night and wonders, is it going to rain during our picnic? And we really don't have a great plan, and I have a tendency to get anxious about that. 
And, and, or, or is the sermon truth-filled? And is it hope-filled? Is it Christ-centered? Is it going to help them? I mean, I mean, that's a concern that I often have. Is this the best word for these people to know Christ intimately and deeply? So I, I think there is a place for legitimate concern. Okay, so what is he telling us then not to be anxious about? Well, I think it has to do with more of a, a preoccupation, a fretting over, a, a consuming of our time and our mind on things specifically that relate to us as well as that there's no God in the picture. It's a concern. It may be a fear of food or clothing or health. It's concerning us, but God isn't relevant to your fear. In other words, he's outside of it. I think that's what he's speaking about. I also don't think it's just bad things that you're fearing, scary things. I think it may be a preoccupation, an anxiety, a concern over making sure you get recognition for that job that you did. Or, or you get the promotion or a higher standard of living or a better job. You know, you're fretting over making sure the reviews are coming in. How is it going to turn out? And you're really preoccupied about what people think about you in that review. I think that can be the same anxiousness that he's saying, don't be anxious about your life, about your career, about your reputation, about your financial position. It's not just the stuff that keeps our bodies moving and clothed, but also the things of life. And I think, he is, I think he says this to all of us here, to not be anxious, to not be fretting over, preoccupied, where there's a clear, there's a clear absence of God in the equation. And, and it's clearly more centered upon us. I, I think it applies to those of you who are younger, teens, 20s, you know, where you're really fretting over body shape, hair, clothing, style, friendships, having the right friends, being accepted, or adults, you know, your reputation is very important to you. You fret over it when people begin to think ill of you, or, or, or job security, or job advancement. Or I think about those who are single. Will I be in a relationship? Will I be, will I be stuck at the end of life without a spouse? Or parents, when you're just hand-wringing nervousness over your children, and over the friends that they might choose and the options that they might make in life, for the seniors over debilitating disease or death. I, I mean, there is no end to the fuel for our worry engine. I mean, it can be the economy. It can be terrorism. It can be liberalism in politics. It can be conservatism in politics for some. Carol's been fearful about asteroids going to hit the earth. I mean, it, it is, there are plenty of things to worry about. I said, that's why we don't need to worry about it, I think. But, 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 but there are all kinds of fears. And, and here's why Jesus is commanding you to not fear. Number one, it's not just because of the health, although it, it is a health issue for us. Uh, I mean, when you are stressed and anxious and concerned, she really isn't, um, you, you, you suffer from sleeplessness, from fatigue, from heart disease. I mean, there are all kinds of issues. Quickness to anger uh, over this anxiety kind of wearing on you. It begins to burn your relationships. I mean, I mean, when you are stressed, you bring that into a relationship, and there is great fracture over our dealings with our spouse and our families and friends when we are under great pressure. The old expression, you kick the dog. You know, when you have problems, it just gets poured out to those around you. But I think what Jesus is condemning, 
this anxiousness for is the spiritual destruction in your life. Remember, the whole thing is now predicated on you are a child of God. That's what he's saying. And for you to be anxious, it begins to, it begins to distract you from that and ultimately strangle faith from you. And let me give you an example. When Jesus was confronting Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset over many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary chose the better. Now, there's much to be explained in that story, somewhat in defense of Mary, but she was distracted. In fact, the word anxious means to be distracted or to be divided. It means that your eyes are taking off the Lord, that you're focusing on other things. That's what anxiety is. You're no longer looking at God. That's the problem. In fact, according to one medical report, uh, driving with reading your texts is equivalent to driving when you're fully intoxicated because of the distractedness that your eyes are totally taken off the road and you're looking at a text on your phone and it's causing the same amount, if not more, damage to people just by the distraction of it. Don't minimize the distractiveness of worry, taking your eyes off of God and moving you into a place of practical atheism. I mean, worry can actually tend to strangle faith. You know, we have the same word used in the parable of the sower. When the seed falls among the thorns and it all grows up together and the thorns begin to choke the life out of the plant, Jesus says it's the worries and the deceitfulness of riches. It's for an affluent culture that has much and worries about much. And it begins to choke out the life of you're a child of God. The Christian is a child of God. And you displace that fatherhood of God by worrying. So, so when you look at your lives right now, what are you most anxious over? What are you most concerned for? What is causing the most amount of, of time to be spent in your mind? Is it, is it jobs? Is it financial security? Is it disrepair in marriage? Is it children? Is it not having friends? Is it the way your body looks? What is, what is most concerning for you? And where is God in this? Have you asked? Where is God in the midst of this struggle? Is God able to help me in the midst of the struggle? I mean, I know you have down cold all the particulars with whatever the content of your worry is, but where is God in the midst of that? Because what Jesus is going to say is he's going to say, don't be anxious anymore. Now, I know that's easier said than done. But he says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious three times. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I, I, I love it sometimes when people say, don't worry, because then I worry. You know, don't fear about this. Then I begin to fear. I mean, when people tell me to do something, sometimes it's hard just to do it. But I'm thankful that Jesus graciously gives us all these arguments about why we don't have to worry. And they're all tied to the character of God. They're all tied to something about God. So I want to go through these with you, and I'm just going to stair-step them one at a time. And I want you thinking about them and the, the, um, the worries that you actually have, and I want you to line them up with these arguments. And I want you to bring them together. Well, is this, tr- is this argument of Jesus true? Can I believe him? And if I can believe him, then the worry will begin to fall before it. So, so let's look at these one at a time. So I've explained legitimate and illegitimate worry. Let me explain the reasons why we don't have to be anxious anymore. Number one would be his, um, his purpose for your life. That's the first thing I want you to think about. God has a purpose for your life. Look with me at 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Is life not more than food? 
and the body more than clothing. So Jesus is going to argue with us here uh, what we would say is from the greater to the lesser. So in other words, if God's going to take care of your greater need by giving you life and breath right now, won't he give you the food to sustain the life that he's given you? If he's given you a body, if he's fashioned a body for you, will he not give you clothes to cover that body? So the argument is, well, yeah, it's true. If he's going to give me life, won't he make sure I have that which sustains life until he draws me home? So that's the argument. You're to say, yeah, I, I guess he will. It's to, it's to diminish fear and worry. But I think there's a little bit more. Look what he says. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? I think he's saying that your lives, your purpose of living is more than, than the food and the clothing and the drink. You're more than animals. You're God's highest creation. You know, we in America are addicted to possessions. According to a PBS report called Affluenza, it says that Americans shop on average. This is a little dated material, so I imagine it's not less than this, but at least six hours a week just to shop. Then in one particular year, more Americans declared bankruptcy than they graduated from college. So you, you have this... Um, 90% of divorce cases, finances play a pro- prominent role. So we, we do live in this life where we're trying to draw the meaning and purpose out of life by the things that we have or own or have achieved, our successes. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The child of God, the one with God as his father, he sees his life coming from God, not in the things that sustain it. In other words, these things are fine. They may be fine and good in their own right, but they're our servants. Now, when the servants become the masters, that's idolatry. In other words, when you begin worshiping that which God has given instead of the giver of the gifts, that's idolatry. And idolatry is where we begin to develop an identity around that which we have. You know, Chris Everett, if you remember the name, she was a famous woman's tennis player. I mean, one, especially in the 70s and 80s, had a remarkable career of great success. In fact, she had developed an identity around her success in tennis. And here's what she wrote when considering retirement. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. That is what building a life around possessions. God has given you, as a child of God, God has given you life in himself. You have been destined and designed for community with God. That God has, through his son Jesus, he has given you eternal life. To be forever with God and to substitute that promise and that purpose for the things of this world is to make just a hazardous choice. Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says this, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you believe that? So, so how do we defeat anxiety? Well, we remember our purpose. Our purpose isn't to acquire and to maintain and to sustain these empires, but to seek a greater life and joy in God. That's the first thing. Second thing is his provision for us. Look with me back in that 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. Or look in uh, 
verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field. So, so Jesus is taking us to nature, God's creation, and he's saying, listen, here's how to banish your anxieties. Just look around. Now, he's not saying notice the birds and notice the flowers. He's saying consider them. And that, that Greek word means to think upon, to examine, to scrutinize. It's a command. Bird watching and gardening is not a waste of time. It's a command to do. God has given us these as examples so that your very own eyes can look around and see that God takes care of that which he creates. God will take care of these things. These birds, they don't sow, they don't wait for the crops to grow, to gather it in, put it in the barns, and then worry if there's enough food for the winter. They just gather what God gives them, and they survive. They work, but they don't worry. And how about the lilies of the valley? I mean, these, these are like crocuses, or these are like poppies. They're, they're like the one-day lily. You know, they maybe come up and they live for maybe 24, 36 hours, and then they quickly dry out. He goes, they're arrayed in a magnificent beauty, and God has done that to show you how glorious he is, even though just for a day. And then it's gathered up and used to heat the furnace to bake the bread. And Jesus twice is, how much more important are you? Now, this argument is from the lesser to the greater. He says, if I'm going to take care of sparrows, and if I'm going to have flowers flash out brilliance, but only for a day for my glory, won't I take care of you? And if you begin to wonder, then he's saying, oh, you have little faith. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe his words? Think about his provision, not just in the flowers and the birds, I think about his provision in Christ. I mean, I mean, his provision for us in giving us a son to take our sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. I mean, God will provide for us. If he provides, he just gives us the flowers and lilies just to explain it to us on simple terms. Charles Spurgeon, that preacher in London in the 19th century, said, Oh, How lovely are the lilies and how they rebuke our nervousness. I mean, how concerned we are over the things of this world when before your very eyes, God has revealed himself to be faithful, faithful, faithful over and over and over again. Will we believe that? So when the worries come into our life, will we go out and study the birds and the flowers and recognize his grace to us? And then when you just go that and go to Christ and say, of course, I don't have to worry. I can banish that concern because of his faithfulness. Okay, third example is not just his purpose and his provision, but how about his sovereign reign? Look with me at verse 27. He says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, there's some debate over that Greek word hour. It could be Uh, a cubit it could be a measurement in terms of time or a measurement in terms of height a cubit was 18 inches so he's saying this question jesus is asking us so is he if he were here preaching he would say okay who of you so you're supposed to ask yourself this who of you could add an hour to your life or 18 inches to your stature by worrying obviously no one could i mean i mean we know the utter foolishness that worry doesn't achieve anything it's absolutely futile but i think there's again more at this I think he's reminding us that while we can't make an hour increase to our life, we've already heard about a God in chapter 6 who has a kingdom, whose name is eternal, whose will is perfect, and who's sovereign over all of life. We've already heard about a God who has numbered the hairs on our head, 
who governs all contingencies, who flies sovereign over all events. Now, this sovereignty of God is not without mystery. I would admit that. But I'm going to take the clear statements and use those to interpret the mysteries. That God is sovereign over all things. Uh, Jesus will say just in a few chapters, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God, apart from his will. Boy, this, when anxiety, you begin, what's that lump? What about that job? What's this going to be? All this anxiousness comes on. Not one sparrow falls to the ground. How much, what's a sparrow worth? I mean, how many sparrows have, have been born and died since you've been living? A bazillion? I, I don't know. I mean, all the sparrows, and not one of them is outside of God's sovereign direction. Now, I want to remind you as Christians, we don't believe in a cosmology that's called an open universe, where, where there are gods and there are people and there is, there is influence of the gods and there is responses of the people and in this dialogue and in this interaction somehow life is moved forward. We don't believe in that, of random events. We don't believe in a closed universe where, where God has created all things and he steps outside of the universe. He's wound it up kind of the divine watchmaker and it's just going to run its course and what happens, happens, and at the end he'll fix it all. We don't believe in that. We believe in a controlled universe where God has created all things. He is outside of his creation, but he is intimately involved in the creation not just through natural law, but through his intervening influence on things. And so God is directing the affairs of his own creation. This is extremely important for us if we're ever banish anxiety. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, how he uh, understood God in the context of the fear of affliction coming into his life, the fear of suffering. Here's what he said. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, and that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and their quantity. That's the intimacy of God leading a universe. I even think about Sean and Kathy just uh, at the last family meeting where they both came up with Ray and they testified He was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer and uh, testified to the anxiety, but then the trust in the sovereignty of God and and the dealing with that. No, God, you're sovereign over this and the peace that that he, as a self-confessed anxious person, felt from God over that issue. Now, that doesn't mean that anxiety won't creep up again, but we meet it with the same sovereignty, that his sovereign plan is greater than the threats that lay before us. So, so his, his purpose for your life banishes anxiety, his provision, his sovereign plan, but also his fatherhood. Look with me in the, in the next verse, in verse 31, he, he goes and repeats it and says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? He says, the Gentiles seek after these things. So now Jesus is going to hold the Gentiles up as an example. And he's going to say, listen, they seek after these things, don't they? And, and implicitly, I think he's saying they should, because that's all they have. 
They have to seek after money. They have to seek after security. They have to seek after these things. And in them, their life rests. And so with that, worry becomes their companion. Because when you rest on temporal things, you don't have an eternal hope. And worry will always be floating around, causing anxiety in your soul. He doesn't chide them for being anxious, because they should be. But you and I, we have a heavenly father. We have a father who knows our needs. I mean, you fathers, you know the needs of your children, or you should. And, and, and as a heavenly father, he knows what we need. In Psalm 103, it says he knows our frame. He knows we're dust. Again, he knows we're dust. I wonder how often we reflect on the fact that we're dust. But, but, but I think about Matthew 7. Just in a few weeks, we're going to look at this idea that fathers, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, even though you are evil, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? God is our Father. We want to rest in that. Now, I was raised with a Father who cared for us. He didn't do everything perfect. And at the beginning of life, in the first probably 12, 15 years, as a family, I don't remember us having an abundance of things. We were always adequately cared for. Dad was moving up in business, and, and, and we just didn't have a lot but we always seemed to have enough, but I never worried about it. I wasn't concerned. You know, I wasn't even wondering, where's the food coming from? Is dad's job still secure? Is he going to be caring for me? There was just a rest. Now, I, I am sympathetic to those of you who have been raised with a father who has not provided a model like that. And it's going to take you a little bit of extra work to consider the fatherhood of God. And I would, I would encourage you fathers, this is the model. You are forming in the first five to ten years of a child's life you're setting up the categories of what God is for them. So I would encourage you to be mindful of your care and responsibility. It's a privilege, by the way, to be a mask of God to your children. But, but to banish anxiety, don't lose the sense of the relationship that you've been adopted as a child. You are not simply a creature apart from God, but you have been saved, delivered, and brought in as a child of God. Now you're a son or you're a daughter. And parents, the same love and passion you have for your kids, he has a greater passion, a greater care, and a greater ability to meet your needs. Okay, the fifth reason to banish anxiety is um, his kingdom, seeking his kingdom. Look with me back in 33. He says, first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now, again, the people of the world are going to seek the things of the world, and worry will be their companion. Getting more of what you already have will not guarantee any security. For the person on this earth, security is an illusion. So there's always going to be reason to fear and be anxious. But Jesus is saying, instead of being anxious, be more attentive to seek the kingdom of God. Now let me explain what that means. Well, let, let me explain why you don't have to be anxious. If you seek the kingdom of God, God makes a promise. And again, I'm going to ask you if you believe in these words of Jesus or not. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So God will give you what you need when you seek his kingdom. Love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you try to put the second things first, and you won't get anything. You put the first things first, and you get the rest. The idea is you seek first the kingdom of God. He will give you what you need. Don't put the kingdom to the side when you're distracted by the worries. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? To seek the kingdom of God means not to enter the kingdom, I don't think. He's already talking to Christians. I think to seek the kingdom of God, what he's saying is to strive to enter into the joy that is yours in Christ. 
In other words, seeking the kingdom of God, you are striving to live in the promises of God with satisfaction and happiness. You're not going to be lusted away after pursuing the things of the world because you know the things of the kingdom are greater and better. And that's what's going to get your emphasis and time and attention and value. That you're going, to be, you're going to be praying, you're going to be conversing with one another as believers, you're going to be worshiping God, you're going to be fighting the temptation to pursue that which God gives rather than God. I think that's what he means to seek the kingdom. I also think it means that you're going to live in light of the kingdom. This is where the righteousness picks up. I think Jesus is saying that, that to receive these things from God, you want to seek his kingdom by enjoying it and by living in obedience to it. I think there's a call for holiness here. That men and women, you are called to pursue holiness. It's a command to be holy as God is holy. Now, we don't work at holiness that God might love us more. He's already loved us in Christ. But it's our love that drives us. It's our love as, as developed as we see the cross that drives us to want to be holy. So seek first the kingdom. Here's what's going to happen in this life. You're going to either, you know, Jesus warned us back in uh, chapter 6, verse 24. He says, you can't serve God and money, right? You're going to serve one or the other. He says, you're going to love one and hate the other. You're going to be devoted to one. You're going to despise the other. He says, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve your kingdom and God's kingdom. Now, I don't want to say this doesn't mean you can't pursue goals and you can't pursue a relationship. You can't pursue a job. It's an issue of priority. It's an issue of priority. Uh, there's no competing seconds to God. So, so be about the kingdom. And then the last one, and I think probably one of the most important ones, is his promise of mercy. So we've talked about you know, his purpose and his provision and his sovereign plan. We've talked about his fatherhood, his kingdom, and now his mercy. Look in 34. He says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's he saying here? I think he's saying this that tomorrow will have trouble for you. We know that. And today may have trouble, but his grace is sufficient for this day. All through the scriptures, we find God trying to help us to live day by day. Doesn't mean we don't plan. Doesn't mean we don't long for the day to see him. But he is trying to get us to live on a day-by-day basis. I think we see that in our bodies, right? We have to eat every day. We have to drink every day. We have to clothe ourselves every day. When God was training them, he took them out of Egypt. They had slipped into paganism. He took them out of Egypt, and he's training them. What's he do? He gives them bread. When? Every day. He could have given it to them every week. He could have given it a month's worth of bread. He chose to give it to them every day to develop this idea of daily dependence on God. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, what does he say? Does he ask? Does he say, hey, listen, pray to your father that he'll give you your weekly bread, your monthly bread. No, he says, pray to give us our daily bread. He's teaching dependence. I think what Jesus is saying here is, folks, to banish anxiety, don't go to tomorrow and take the troubles and pull it into today. I mean, just deal with what do you have today? And his grace will be sufficient for that day. Tomorrow will have troubles of its own. If you stop and think about all the possibilities that can intersect your life with destruction, it is crushing. It's going to be cancer. It can be an auto accident. Maybe the kids will go awry. Maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe the economy is going to collapse. Maybe a terrorist activity in Raleigh. It can be anything, and it can crush you. And and I think Jesus is saying the way to deal with anxiety is to deal with it by saying, I have today, I have his promise of grace today, and that's sufficient for me. If you wake up tomorrow, 
He will be faithful, according to Lamentations 3. His mercies are new every morning. And so when you wake up, if your eyes open up, then you will have the grace tomorrow to be sustained in that day. Like what John Piper said about this, one of the sermons is, today's mercies are for today's troubles. They're not designed to handle tomorrow's burdens. Or Gordon MacDonald said this, he said, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burdens are added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. So, so, so he's given us all these reasons, all these promises of God to sustain us in the face of anxiety. Now, folks, if there are some of you here who do not know God as Father, I, I want to warn you that your life will be a constant. Uh, it will have a constant dialogue with anxiety and concern. You're going to pursue the things of this world because you're going to need to find hope in something. And it's going to either be a strong pension portfolio, it's going to be a strong job or strong performances, or you're going to helicopter kids because you're going to protect them if that's your place of worry. You're not going to live in freedom because you don't have a God who is your Father. Now, the good news about this whole scripture is if you go back with me just in your minds to chapter 5 at the beginning of a sermon, he opens the sermon with, Blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying that to become a child of God, it begins with recognizing we're not a child of God. And we're outside of God. We're, we're, we bear sin and we have the guilt and the shame of our sin. And it's, turning, it's really turning to God, recognizing my sin and my shame and my guilt and repenting of it. And then believing in Jesus who has come as Ray prayed. He's our substitutionary atonement. He's taken our sin and shame and guilt. And by faith in him and in his work, we are forgiven and we are adopted. And then we can call God as father. Now, if you do not know God as father, if you haven't repented of sin, if you haven't turned by faith to the work of Christ in leading us back to the father, and you were interested in that, then come forward. Speak with Ray. Speak with me. Speak with Luke. Come forward and speak to us about that. But for the Christian here, I'm going to go back to the question I had at the beginning. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus? But do you believe in his words? So he has instructed us to not be anxious because God's purpose and God's provision, God's sovereign in your life, God's your father. God has a kingdom that you're to seek and that God has given you mercy for this day to not worry. Do you believe that? Would you at least with me look at your life, admit if worry is sin, confess it as sin, repent of it, acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of God, and then place your hope in Christ. Take the worry that comes, place your hope in Christ. Even if you need to draw another brother or sister in to pray for that. But let us be a people that display that we really do have a Father and that we're not bound up by anxiety and worry, but we can live lives of freedom and joy and legitimate concern as children of God. Let me pray for us, and then I'd like to call the elders and staff forward for communion. Father, uh, we've heard the word today and ask for your grace as, as has been prayed that we would not be simply hearers, but we would be doers. Father, that you would affect change in us, that you would affect change, that we would begin to find a greater hope and deliverance in you 
uh, than we have found in the things of this world. May we be a people who overcome anxiety by faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.